0: One bird that I've seen every single year since 1975, but pay little attention to except to list it during warbler migration, is the Tennessee warbler. It's among the tiniest within a family of tiny birds, weighing about double the weight of a ruby-throated hummingbird, but 20 to 30 percent less than a chickadee. It's easily confused with the orange-crowned warbler, and beginners may also confuse it with vireos. Its three-part song is one of the longest and loudest of warbler songs, and easy enough to learn that I figured it out my second year of birding before I recognized hardly any other bird songs birders count birds that we hear, even if we don't see them. Except on the most competitive big days, just about anyone who hears a Scarlet Tanager, Blackburnian Warbler, or any of a number of other brilliant singers will take at least a moment to try to see it as well. But hardly anyone bothers to look for a singing Tennessee Warbler, even when we're moseying. I saw my first Tennessee warbler on September 3rd, 1975. Russ and I spent that Labor Day weekend visiting his parents up in Port Wing, Wisconsin, where I added 13 species to my life list. The most memorable thing about it was that it was number 100, a milestone species. But the intensity of seeing so many new birds in such a short time blurred my memories. It's impossible to say one lifer when a dozen more are flitting about, and the little Tennessee warbler was too busy living its own life to squander energy trying to grab my attention. This year, Tennessee warblers have been impossible for me to ignore. With our unusually cold spring, trees were barely starting to leaf out as the fourth week of May began, Warblers normally fuel their migration on the tiny caterpillars that hatch right as leaves are opening, and this year, that natural food was hardly available at all. I had an abundance of Tennessee and Cape May warblers crowding into my Oriole feeders. The most I photographed at once was nine, but I saw as many as ten crowded into that small feeder at one time. It's fun to see warblers sitting near big-headed chickadees knowing how intelligent chickadees are, but warblers are smarter and more adaptable than their tiny heads would make us think. They have to be to figure out how to eke out a living their very first migration when they leave the only world they've ever known, the quiet boreal forest. To get to the tropics, they must pass through all kinds of strange habitats if after a long, weary nocturnal flight, they find themselves in the middle of Minneapolis or Chicago or an Iowa cornfield, they have to figure out how to find food and safe resting spots or they're doomed. Back when I was rehabbing wild birds, I was constantly struck by how quickly warblers adapt to temporary captivity. So I wasn't surprised that the warblers visiting this spring quickly figured out that when I was on the other side of the window, I was just part of the landscape. Whenever starlings fly into the window feeder, I charge up to the window and wave my hand to get them to fly off. Chickadees ignore that, and the Tennessee warblers took their cues from them. They did fly off when I opened the lower pane to replenish the feeder, but returned the moment I closed the window. I opened the upper pane to photograph birds in the nearby trees, and this past week I got the loveliest as well as closest pictures of Tennessee warblers I've ever taken. These dainty, quietly winsome birds have been such a constant presence for over a week that I'll be sad when they move on. They're headed for boreal forests, mostly in Canada, but also northern Minnesota and Wisconsin, where their reproductive success is tied to natural spruce budworm population cycles. Our short-sighted forestry methods to control these insects have led to declines in their population, along with those of Cape May and Bay-breasted warblers and evening grosbeaks. Tennessee warblers are abundant enough that their population losses are not a major concern to conservationists, especially compared with other declining species. But then again, people once thought evening grosbeaks were too abundant to disappear too. I'm Laura Erickson, speaking for the birds.